Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for being here and coming on this journey with me. Welcome to an educational podcast for professionals working with the Latinx community. My name is Lauren Masalis, and I am a licensed clinical social worker currently in the state of Maryland and have practiced in the state of Connecticut as well. I graduated with my master's of social work degree from the University of Connecticut back in 2016, and I've been practicing in the sector of nonprofit outpatient community mental health clinics ever since. I have worked both with children and adults, but now I only see adults at an outpatient clinic in Baltimore, Maryland. If you're listening, this means you're someone who wants to learn, grow, become a better practitioner, improve your clinical skills, be culturally competent, and you're willing to engage in the difficult work and conversations that many are not willing or open to engaging in. So I'm proud of you for being here, and I'm proud of you for wanting to be on this journey. In this podcast, we will be covering some pretty sensitive topics, including but not limited to trauma, abuse, and overall mental illness. If at any time you feel triggered, please take time to pause and engage in self-care and necessary self-reflection to meet your own personal needs at that time. Listen to your personal cues. The contents of this podcast in relation to mental health are for educational and informational purposes only. While I have made the effort to ensure that the information I'm providing is accurate, evidence-based, and peer-reviewed, I welcome any comments, suggestions, and feedback. You can find my email in the show notes in the description of the podcast episode wherever you're listening to this podcast. So like I said before, this podcast is a limited series that will be an educational podcast for mental health professionals working with the Latinx immigrant and non-immigrant population. But even if you don't meet this description of a professional or a practitioner working with this population, you can still find this conversation stimulating, educational, and helpful. In future episodes, I will have some great guests on that have professional and personal experience with the Latinx community. I am positive that there's something that you will get out of this no matter who you are. So whoever you are, whatever your profession is, whatever your identity is, you're welcome here. And I hope that I can provide a new tool or tools to improve your life, well-being, with the information that we will be discussing in this podcast. And maybe you can too engage in becoming a change agent and disseminating this information and knowledge to whoever's in your life. So what's to be expected in this first episode? So in this episode, we will dive into the world of what it means to be a Latinx individual. What does that exactly encompass? and what types of people identify as Latinx. We will go over definitions and a brief history of how the terminology of identity has changed and evolved throughout the years. We will discuss who has been left out of the conversation when it comes to the Latinx community, like Afro-Latinx individuals 
and Indigenous peoples. I will discuss the process and purpose of what it means personally to create this podcast and what's expected in future episodes. I will discuss my own personal story and positionality statement. This podcast really aims to address the gaps that are currently affecting the delivery and adequacy of mental health treatment for Latinx individuals and Latinx immigrants. This podcast series serves as a different modality that will serve as a tool for professionals, practitioners, who really want to learn more about working with this population and how to better serve this population. The podcast uses current peer-reviewed literature to guide in the creation and development of the content. This podcast will provide a further reach, hopefully for professionals who maybe would not engage in this education in other forms like books, lectures, or in-person trainings. And lastly, but most importantly, this podcast aims to shine a light on an extremely important issue that quite honestly could be preventable in many ways. This issue is the ongoing barriers that the Latinx community faces and have to go through to be able to access adequate mental health services. And what all these barriers have really led to a health crisis within this community. So the main goal for this educational podcast is to help professionals and empower professionals to then be able to empower their own clients and work towards eliminating social barriers for this population in obtaining treatment. Significant research shows that the lack of access to health services is a large predictor of health risk among undocumented immigrants. This limited health care access for this particular population may also have various negative effects for the host society, so for the U.S., due to higher costs of health care for conditions that could have been prevented and or loss of work, perhaps. As a Latinx immigrant, this is an issue that I've experienced and lived through, and I continue to have to address with my family members, particularly my mom and dad, who are monolingual Spanish speaking. I also have experience working with various community members, Latinx community members, including both documented and undocumented individuals. So again, the purpose of this podcast and these episodes is to provide education and guidance to practitioners working with Latinx immigrants. Using the information gathered from literature review findings, this podcast will comprise of what the research shows is lacking for the mental health services provided to the community as well as what we can do as practitioners to begin dismantling these barriers. Because lack of access to health services is a significant predictor of health risk among undocumented immigrants, according to Garcini et al. 2022. And it's vital to address this issue. So let's talk a bit about the meanings. What do all these words mean? Latinx, 
Latina, Latino, Hispanic, Chicano, or you've probably heard a lot of people just identify themselves as where the country that they're from. For example, I would usually introduce myself as Chilean because I'm from the country of Chile. So as a group, Latinx, Latina, Latino are comprised of native and foreign-born residents who trace their origins to places like Puerto Rico and approximately 20 other countries, including Mexico, Cuba, and other areas throughout the Caribbean, Central America, and South America, according to Salinas 2017. Other options for identifiers, like I mentioned before, include Latino, Latine, Hispanic, and we will be using Latinx for the purposes of this podcast as a gender neutral term. But it is important to always ask the individual what they prefer to be identified as. So some of this terminology forces the individual to identify as either male or female. Latino or Latina. But Latinx, on the other hand, gives both the speaker and the listener the ability to opt out of the gender binary. The term Latinx was only added to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary in 2018, according to Sablinas et al. 2020. So like I said, Latinx is a gender-inclusive term that refers to a heterogeneous group of people who trace their ancestry to Latin America, including French and Portuguese-speaking nations. Latinxes may also identify themselves by their national or territorial or ethnic group origins, Cuban, Puerto Rican, Mexican, Mayan, like I said with myself, Chilean. Latinx is really an umbrella term that includes a very diverse cultural, linguistic, and racial experience for the individuals. And this includes individuals who are Afro-Latinx, European-descended, indigenous people of the Americas, and those who also identify as mestizo, which is of mixed ancestry, according to Sardegna et al. 2021. This author also expressed that despite the diversity in nativity, racial identity, and ethnic background, the Latinx community is bonded by linguistic and cultural ties, as well as a long history of colonization, dispossession, migration, and all these things occurring oftentimes under extreme stress due to environments of violence or economic oppression. In The Untaught Story, Devia 2011, this is a docuseries that tells the story of the estimated 200 million invisible Afro-descendants currently living in Latin America. So this is one of the populations that I mentioned before have been ignored and dismissed and not included in the Latinx conversation. Afro-Latinos is a seven-part series in English and Spanish that shows the rich culture and shares the contributions of enslaved Africans who arrived to Central and South America. So it tells the story of their history, 
of slaves in Latin America and the amount of individuals that have African roots but are often ignored in not only the media but society as a whole. The history of the Spanish conquest is often taught in school. I learned it in Chile. I learned about it when I came to the U.S. in the third grade, but not the history of ancestors from Africa. That is not being taught in schools. So this docuseries really documents that there's over 150 million Afro-Latinos in Latin America, but school systems don't teach about the African diaspora in school systems. The docuseries documents Afro-Latinos in over 18 countries and the importance of documenting their culture within Latin America. The docuseries reports that racial discrimination continues to be a large problem in Latin America. And like I said before, it's rarely covered in the media. There's even still countries that have no Afro-Latino identifiers in census forms. And just recently in 2015 is when Mexico allowed people to identify as Black or Afro-Mexican for the first time in their mid-decade survey. And about 1.4 million Mexicans self-identified as Black or of African descent, according to Lopez and Gonzalez Barrera, 2022. So it's undeniable that Afro-Latinos make up a significant amount of population in various parts of Latin America. Brazil, for example, contains approximately half of the population being of African descent, which includes Black or mixed-race Black. And in the Caribbean, Black Cubans make up about one-third of the country's population. Estimates of Afro-descent in the DR, Dominican Republic, range from about a quarter to almost 90%. And these particular statistics depend on the population estimates, which include those who identify as Indio, which is a group that includes many non-whites and mixed-race individuals with African ancestry, according to Lopez and Gonzalez Arreda, 2022. A Pew Research Center survey of Latino adults in 2014 shows that one quarter of all U.S. Latinos self-identify as Afro-Latino, Afro-Caribbean, or of African descent with roots in Latin America. And this was actually the first time a nationally representative survey in the U.S. has asked the Latinx population directly whether they considered themselves Afro-Latino. According to an NPR article, between 1502 and 1866, 11.2 million Africans arrived, those that survived, arrived in slave ships to the West. But of those 11.2 million, only 450,000 people came to the U.S. The rest of those slaves who survived the journey from Africa were taken to the Caribbean, Latin America, and South America. And this is definitely not something that I learned while I was in school, either in Chile or the U.S. Another really interesting documentary called Afro-Latinx Revolution speaks also on the importance of including 
Afro-Latinos in the discussion of identity within Latin America. Afro-Latinxes speak different languages, have a, have a diverse culture, come with rich history, and have had major impacts on things like food, sports, music, dance. And these things really cannot be ignored because they are part of the culture of these Latin American countries. And they have influenced all these different aspects of their culture. A young woman in the documentary expressed feeling, quote, too Latin to be Black and too Black to be Latin, end quote, which really speaks on the difficulty that the subgroup has had and continues to have in terms of identity and being seen and heard and clearly even issues with not feeling a sense of belonging in their own country which we know as practitioners is extremely important and a significant factor in mental wellness. So this documentary really brings light on police brutality and discrimination against those with darker complexion and darker skin in Puerto Rico specifically when we're speaking about this documentary. Racism and classism are structural issues and the more we speak on it, the more awareness and light is shed on the issue. So I think that these two documentaries are doing a really great job at highlighting these inequalities. So the term Hispanic is said to leave out the indigenous populations who do not speak Spanish, among others, and some say celebrates the connection to white European heritage, which colonized indigenous communities. The Latin American community is extremely unique due to its mixed race heritage. Another criticism of the word Hispanic is that it's Anglo-Saxon in nature because it's not derived from a Spanish word. These are some reasons why Latino, Latina, Latinx is used more by many as it derives from the Latin language. The term Hispanic refers to the language and the term Latino refers to geography coming from Latin America. Latino also refers to individuals from Spanish speaking and non-Spanish speaking groups. So this includes those that speak indigenous languages and those that come from places like Belize, Brazil, French Guyana and Suriname which also encompass people from Asian and African descent, according to Garcia 2020. So modern feminist and gender fluid activists have had a long fight to abolish the binary. And this includes language as well, of course. So this kind of activism has worked towards making the term Latino to be more inclusive and using words like Latinx, Latine, etc. And most linguists agree that the term Latinx was not popularized until 2014. So the LGBTQ plus movement has played truly a major role in shaping the discussion, like the use of gendered pronouns, unisex bathrooms, advocacy for safer communities, and various ways of strengthening the LGBTQ plus presence in the built environment. The LGBTQ plus movement has also been shaping how some Latinxes self-identify, according to Garcia 2020. According to the U.S. Census Bureau 2017, 
The Latinx community represents the largest ethnic minority group in the United States, and they face significant risk factors regarding access to mental health treatment. Several studies have found that there are significant barriers to accessing adequate, timely, and appropriate mental health services within the Latinx immigrant community. The Latinx community is disproportionately impacted by impoverished conditions to their daily lives due to structural and social factors like economic issues, cultural values, income, education, occupation, social supports, and access to health services, according to Velasco Mondragon, ATAL 2016. And all of these social determinants of health impact this community greatly. According to Garcini Atel 2022, the longer an immigrant lives in the US, the risk for diminished health outcomes increases due to the persistent and chronic stressors that they face on a daily basis. Chronic stress that's faced by this community has a significant correlation for poor health and at times even lead, leading to a preventable death. Because of the Latinx immigrant community facing constant barriers to maintaining healthy mental health and healthy overall status, there really must be an increase in access to interdisciplinary, affordable, safe, and culturally competent care. So clearly the Latinx population in the US is growing rapidly and will most likely continue to grow. Therapists, providers, practitioners serving this community really must be adequately prepared to address this particular community's specific issues in a culturally competent manner. This means that education for therapists and practitioners must be readily available and in various forms. Thus, this educational podcast allowing sort of a different form of education and a wider dissemination of information. According to Lauricela et al. 2021, ensuring that therapists are prepared to work with the Latinx immigrant community will lead to a stronger therapeutic alliance and will also allow the therapist to work with a community despite cultural differences. Perspective from various sources, including immigrants themselves, which will center their voices within this topic, will contribute differently than most of the research available currently. So this podcast will aim to provide a different perspective from myself, a Latinx immigrant, and I plan to have some really wonderful guests in future episodes. Many professionals are ill-equipped to deal with the specific needs of the Latinx immigrant community. This is primarily due to the lack of education on specific subgroups, as well as the availability of current research. Many professionals don't know what questions to ask or they should prepare in order to work with a specific population. This podcast will allow professionals to have a space to learn this information in a different capacity and will hopefully assist in filling the gap of training for professionals working with the Latinx community. 
Professionals may mean well when they ask their own clients for assistance or guidance on treatment, but it's really unfair to put this burden on the individual client. It's a professional's responsibility to get to know the population they're working with and not to put this responsibility on the client to educate them on their own culture. If a therapist or a provider is not properly trained and culturally aware of a specific community, they may depend and lean on the patient to educate them on the culture and process of immigration. But this is really the responsibility of the practitioner. I would like to take a brief moment and thank the sponsor of today's episode, a Latinx-owned small business called Lou Designs CT, an arts and crafts business based out of Connecticut. This is a business owned by a Chilean couple, and they basically hand make anything that you ask for, from custom personalized wallets, Christmas ornaments, jewelry boxes, wooden signs, customized pet dish holders with their names, string art, and basically I've never heard of them turning something down that's arts and crafts. So they're pretty much willing to work with you on your specific needs and requests. So whether you're someone that has a business of your own and you're looking for some signs or decor for your office or your place of work, or you're someone who wants to find a cute personalized gift for someone's next birthday or holiday coming up, you can custom request whatever your little heart desires. They ship continental U.S. and will only charge you for the exact postage from post office, and they don't charge any extra shipping and handling fees. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook under Lou Designs CT. That's L-U-D-E-S-I-G-N-S-C-T. And I will also leave their information under the show notes. Thank you again, Lou Designs, for being a proud sponsor of this podcast. Now back to our original programming. This project will also include the discussion of positionality and power and how this is a major factor in the ability to access certain resources for the Latinx immigrant population. According to Velasco Mondragon et al. 2016, the Hispanic community is the largest minority group in the U.S. The Latinx people contribute to the economy, cultural diversity, and overall health of the nation. So it's truly vital to continuously assess their health status and specific health needs to inform things like health policy, program production, program implementation, and overall guidance for professionals. Now we're going to talk a little bit about positionality, and I will discuss my own positionality statement so that you as a listener are aware of where this information is coming from and how I have synthesized everything that I've read and all the research that I've done for this podcast. So if you don't know, positionality refers to the place that an individual person occupies within a set of social relationships. Everyone has a position in relation to others within a society when it comes to positionality. An individual's position is the result of combining various social factors or identifiers, including but not limited to race, sex, class, gender, ability, age, religion, sexual orientation, nationality, physical stature, education, occupation, relational status, 
language. And many other things that we would say, this is something that identifies me as a person. So I identify as an overall healthy and able-bodied individual. I have a mental health diagnosis that's not visible as a disability or a diagnosis to the external eye. So if I don't tell you, you wouldn't be aware that I have a mental health diagnosis. I have an advantage and perceived power due to my higher education. I identify with the gender and pronouns I was given at birth, and I'm not questioned about my sexuality or my identity. My ethnicity and background inform the values my family has taught me. I was born in Chile, and I moved to the U.S. with my parents in 2001 when I was nine years old. We moved to a predominantly white neighborhood, and I attended an elementary school where no employees spoke Spanish, so no teachers, no aides, there was no ESL program, English as a second language. I think my cousin was there, so we were in the same grade, and she, she was bilingual, so she was significant help to me. And there was another student that was, I think, one or two grades above me that they would sometimes pull out and ask her to help with translation which really is not best practice. <laughs> and I'm sure everybody knows that. Having to learn a language on my own without any assistance from parents or teachers has really informed the way that I learn and view the world. I currently live in an area where I have access to food, water, shelter, a car to get me wherever I choose to go. Growing up in a low middle class family allowed me to see struggles and difficulties but we had our basic needs met. I joined the Air Force when I graduated high school to have a way to pay for college as my parents were unable, I believe, to sign any loans since they were not financially able to do so. And they didn't know how to manage any of that because neither of them graduated high school. So they, one, the language barrier, but two, they weren't aware how any of that college stuff worked. So I had to find a way to pay for college on my own without assistance from family. And after obtaining my bachelor's and master's in social work, I finished my six-year contract in the Air Force. And I feel like around this time, I was sort of able to move from lower middle class to upper middle class. I am married to a man, which allows me to not feel judged for who I chose to marry. I don't have children. <clears throat> And I'm often challenged on this because of my age. We have two dogs, so I, we see them as our children. I'm now part of two cultures, and I'm often found in this strange in-between place where at times I don't feel like I belong to either of them fully or 100%. When I visit family in Chile, they see me as American, as I've lost a lot of the slang, and maybe I don't relate to a lot of the way of living at times. And in the U.S., I'm seen as a Latinx immigrant, and, I'm, and I often don't understand certain childhood references to things in the media, as I was not part of that as a child. I grew up in a sexist household, also known as machista, machismo in Spanish, and this has led me to be a bit sensitive around the topic. So it's important for me to be aware of that when I'm doing research and I'm interpreting things that I'm reading. And I'm always attempting to deconstruct the inequality I saw between a man and a woman when I was growing up.
When I think of my own positionality, I focus and bring into consideration my education, both formal and informal. So things that I learned in school, things that I learned through my own experience, things I learned from my family, friends, being a middle class citizen, identifying as a Latinx woman and as someone who is an immigrant to this country. So my own positionality influences my teaching because I bring these identities to the table in any position that I'm part of. And that's important to keep in mind. My positionality influences my approach and working with others due to experiencing the world as a Latinx immigrant female. This identity and positionality allows me to bring my own experience of the barriers and opportunities I have had due to the way I navigate the world and especially the world of social work and of helping people. I can bring in my experience of cultural awareness in terms of traditions, culture, gender roles, and just overall introspection of my own personal views. According to Ortiz Paz et al., 2018, literature and research has shown extensive proof that there's usefulness of a positionality statement within the classroom, a learning environment, and other realms of the social work field. Positionality statements allow instructors and students to challenge assumptions, access various forms of power, and manage the distribution of power and hopefully be able to learn from diverse and non-dominant resources. And it helps to foster a sense of responsibility and allows us to have different ways of engaging students in anti-oppressive work and learning. And according to the same author, our identities are never separate from our work or education. And this quote really explains the importance of positionality and having a positionality statement as this will never be separate from how we're guiding our teaching. Hearn 2012 discusses the connection between intersectionality and positionality and how one must not only analyze a single identifier, but the multiple sides and factors that make up an individual, which all interact with one another simultaneously. Educators represent various social locations and positionality, which leads to the individual implementing different theoretical frames for practice within the classroom and within the learning environment, according to Taylor et al. 2000. A positionality statement really allows students to students or learners to understand the background of the educator and what informs them in the process of creating their own classroom and learning environment. So now that you know where I'm coming from and how I'm synthesizing all this information, we're going to get to some of the reasons and research as to why this podcast is important, why this information is important, and why this is really something that we need to be talking about and educating others on. The Latinx community and immigrant population is faced with a variety of barriers to accessing adequate and appropriate mental health services. Majority of findings in the literature address the significant barriers faced by the Latinx community, as well as how these barriers further decrease their mental health and physical wellness. The fact that the Latinx immigrant community, regardless of legal status, are at a disadvantage when it comes to accessing appropriate services is really, it's not acceptable. It's really not acceptable. 
like I said before, the Latinx community is the largest growing ethnic and cultural group in the U.S. And it's really vital that agencies, professionals, lawyers, and all mental health professionals come together to address the gaps that are significantly impacting this population. There's a lack of effort that's going into managing Latinx immigrant health disparities due to system level issues, which have caused a mental health crisis within this population. This calls for innovation and strategic planning to offer help and support directly and through community organizations, according to Rush Atel 2020. Diaz and Fenning 2021 go directly to promoting the understanding of discrimination embedded within society that creates significant barriers for Latinx immigrants to meet their mental health needs. And this is truly the responsibility of all mental health practitioners. Diaz and Fenning 2021 also point out that the Latinx community has historically been seen as a homogeneous group, but there are significant intersectionalities like we spoke about before within this community that include, but are not limited to things like country of origin, age, gender, various reasons for migration, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, and various other intersectionalities. So depending on an individual's intersectionality, this will also correlate to the mental health support, need, and level of efficacy. A narrative that's grounded in the U.S. is that this is a country built by immigrants who are vital to the establishment, the growth, and the identity of the nation, according to Hesse Tal, 2002. Despite the common thread, immigrants are not historically or currently being treated with the care of someone who's seen as vital to the growth of the nation. So professionals truly must do better. According to Vaughn Atel 2017, research has focused on conducting studies on or about immigrant communities rather than with immigrant communities. So like we spoke about before, the importance of centering the voices of these individuals. A significant aspect of improving the health and overall well-being of immigrants is to center their own perspectives and needs and include them in the research process whenever possible. Hesse Tal 2022 promotes addressing inequities in the research itself if the aim is to embrace health equity to improve mental health treatment and intervention. Overall, health disparities for this population are an all-time high concern due to the ongoing increase in growth of the Latinx immigrant population. Access to care and working towards dismantling structural barriers for all Latinx immigrants is a necessity. This is only possible, though, if all professions commit to not only educating themselves on a particular population or culture, but also actively fighting against ongoing discrimination and the various structural barriers that this population has to endure when accessing mental health services. In a study where almost 90% of graduate social work staff agreed that preparing students to engage in culturally sensitive practice with Latinx is important, found that only 40% of the school staff believed that students were truly prepared to work with this community, according to Foreman 2002. 
This discrepancy between the importance of providing culturally competent care to this community versus the readiness of providers is a big deal and an issue that needs to continue to be addressed going forward. Latinxes are at risk of poverty, lack of education, substance use, ill health, exposure to violence, racism, systemic barriers, and all barriers that lead to limited life opportunities. This is why it's imperative to ensure the effective access to treatment for this community. I am personally a social worker. I know that there's other professions that will be listening to this podcast, but I'm going to be discussing the social work code of ethics and that the code of ethics, our code of ethics, outlines the importance and responsibility we have as social workers and as mental health professionals to have a focus on cultural factors that influence the clients that we see. So cultural competence is in our code of ethics, and I'm sure that is in many other code of ethics for the helping professions. So the code of ethics for social workers says that we should demonstrate an understanding of culture and its function in human behavior and society, as well as recognizing the strengths that exist in various cultures. Social workers should also demonstrate knowledge that guides within their practice with clients of various cultures and be able to demonstrate these skills of culturally informed services that empower individuals and groups. Social workers should be taking active action against oppression, racism, discrimination, and inequalities for various individuals, as well as acknowledging our own personal privilege. Social workers should also demonstrate awareness and cultural humility by engaging in ongoing self-reflection. So this means understanding our own biases and correcting those biases as we go. Recognizing that clients are experts of their own culture, no matter how much we know, an individual will always be an expert of themselves and thus their own culture. And we have to commit to lifelong learning. There's no end to this. There's no stop. We can always learn more and we can always improve ourselves as practitioners, as well as holding the institutions that we're employed with for being accountable in advancing cultural humility. So what is your place of work actually doing to improve this? Social workers should also have education about and demonstrate an understanding of the nature of social diversity and oppression with respect to race, ethnicity, and other intersectionality. Social workers who provide electronic services should also be aware of cultural and socioeconomic differences among clients. And of course, we saw this come up a lot during the pandemic. So many people were unable to access technology necessary to continue their treatment. I have a podcast episode in the future. I'm going to be talking to a school social worker, and she discussed all the barriers that the Latinx children and their families had to go through during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's a little bit about the NASW Code of Ethics, the National Association of Social Workers. And I would urge you to really look back on your own Code of Ethics within your profession and really see really reflect on what you've been doing and maybe what your organization has been or not been doing.
When working with the Latinx community, it's imperative that as a professional, we're not stereotyping or grouping a community as if everyone were the same or as if everyone has the same experiences because they're Latinx identity or because they're Latinx immigrants. There's clear differences that influence each individual's culture, values, and the way of viewing and living their lives and the world. Cultural competence requires ongoing development of our sensitivity in terms of culture, awareness, knowledge, and skills, according to Furman et al. 2009. So I know that this episode was really jam-packed with information, but I want you to reflect and think about what you heard today, the things that we talked about, intersectionality, the barriers to treatment, assessing your own privilege. What was shocking from what you listened to today? What did you already know? How does this information change your perspective, if at all, of the Latinx community? What can you do better as a practitioner? What's a goal that you can make? A six-month goal, a 12-month goal to improve your cultural competence. Think about it, journal about it, write it down discuss with your colleagues or friends, family, or really anyone that's willing to have a discussion on what we've discussed today. Further episodes will consist of exactly what steps and tools to incorporate as practitioners to better serve the Latinx community. In the next episode, we will talk about why it's important to discuss this information and the current health disparities the Latinx community is facing. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope that you join me on the rest of this journey. And please don't forget the references and all articles that were used to inform this episode can be found in the show notes wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you are experiencing an immediate crisis, please call 911. If you or a loved one are feeling suicidal, please call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. The previous lifeline number, 1-800-273-8255, is also available to people in emotional distress or suicide crisis. SAMHSA also has a free confidential 24-7 treatment referral and information service line in English and Spanish, and that number is one 800 662-4357.